Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I am the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, and I'm economist to the eye. Good plug. This week, we are talking about the war on drugs. Ian, this was your suggestion. Why Why did you want to talk about this? Well, I mean, I suppose there's a couple of reasons. The first one is, it is about as profound a policy failure as you can find anywhere on earth. And secondly, it uses a series of words, none of which stand up to any kind of analysis or appraisal. Interesting. The word war and the word drugs, specifically, because it doesn't really target drugs, and it isn't really a war, and therefore feels like the kind of thing that might be within our remit. Funnily enough, of course, the phrase is not in our usual remit. The first time we don't have an OED definition, it's mm. not in there, but we don't really need one, because I suppose the argument is, is, like you say, about whether it works, not what it means. And we don't need a first citation, because we know that it came out of a press conference by President Richard Nixon in June 1971. He said, America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. And then reports of this speech used the phrase war on drugs, probably inspired by Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty seven years earlier. But still, this is why we have the war on cancer, the war on terror, the war on inflation, Mm. and and so on. I just want to quote from the rise of the war metaphor in public policy by David Davenport and Gordon Lloyd. Because as these domestic policy wars have evolved, however, five conclusions become clear. One, they do not generally solve the problem at hand. (laughs) Two, they create roadblocks to better policy solutions. Three, they increase executive power at the expense of Congress, obviously specifically American there. Four, their imagery is often negative and destructive. And five, they never end. (laughs) All of which I think is true of the war on drugs, which one of the sources, uh, I quote, drug wars by Neil Woods and J.S. Raffaele say, in terms of its own stated aims, the prohibition of drugs is likely the most radically failed policy in modern history. (laughs) And very, really very hard to argue with that. But, But Ian, you kind of sort of complicated this in an interesting way by by saying actually that we cannot agree on what drugs are i mean what how do you mean they don't mean what drugs means we can say what drugs are it is a substance that changes the functioning of the central nervous system in other words it's a thing you take to Mm. change how you feel but that's not what they mean when they say war on drugs i mean imagine now that you were flying across the earth okay what would you see underneath you You would see thousands of acres that were dedicated to different crops for alcohol production, for tea and coffee plantations. You'd see the vineyards in Europe and across the Southern Hemisphere, vast tobacco plantations in China, in Brazil, in India, in the USA, in Indonesia. You'd see then the drugs that we think are naughty or not allowed. You'd see the South American coca bushes, the poppy fields across the Middle East and Asia. You'd see cannabis almost everywhere. If you were flying across an urban landscape, you then see huge factories dedicated to producing tranquilizers, antidepressants, sleeping pills, and then other smaller underground factories that were dedicated towards producing ecstasy, amphetamines, ketamine. That's what drugs is. That's the whole sort of panoply of drugs. The total global value of drugs, licit and illicit at the moment, is $1.4 trillion. Okay, now that is second only to oil for generating 
revenue. To give you some impression of the scale of that, the arms trade is worth 100 billion. Okay. So, I mean, it is an absolutely massive thing. And it goes back all the way through human history. I mean, we've seen in the Sumerian culture. So 6,000 years ago, that's currently in southern Iraq. Sumeria is basically the dawn of human civilization. That they were using opium at that stage. They called it the plant of joy, which suggested already they were using it for sort of medical and recreational usage. It seems very likely that they are fundamental, foundational, really, to the human experience. And even if you look at our country, we define ourselves through two different drugs, right? We define ourselves in this country through pubs and tea. So when they say war on drugs, they definitely don't mean war on drugs. They mean war on some things that we don't like. And I think, as we'll see, there's some very specific things with very specific association. And, th and then the crucial part is the ones that are made illegal are certainly never the most dangerous ones. So this is a quote from David Musto, who wrote The Origins of Narcotic Control, which is basically sort of the classic text on American legal changes over the last hundred years or more. He wrote, the history of the drug laws in the United States show that the degree to which a drug has been outlawed or curbed has no direct relation to its inherent danger. Now, that has been the case throughout this period. So if you remember in 2009, David Nutt was the chairman of the Advisory mm. Council on the Misuse of Drugs in the UK, a statutory body. And he put forward an analysis. This body is supposed to sort of actually advise the government on drugs harms. Now, the moment that David Nutt decided to take that seriously, he published these nine parameters of harm, trying to put a hierarchy of, of damage to society and to the individual from drugs. He ended up putting alcohol as the fifth most harmful. It was after heroin, cocaine, barbiturates, and methadone, but ahead of LSD, ahead of ecstasy, ahead of cannabis. And the response of the then Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, was just to fire him. I mean, very, as, that, soon as, as soon as yeah. you try to talk objectively about this stuff, it's like, no, you have to go there, away now. There's a pattern, pattern there. So I'm going to sort of draw on, on, on David T. Courtright, mm. um, who's a good writer about drugs. And he sort of breaks down the five, the main objections to drugs. One is harm to self and others. Mm. Two is the social costs, such as like lost hours and workplaces, medical costs and so on. Three is religious disapproval. Mm. Four is race and class prejudice. And five is a perceived threat to the future of the group, mm. to like the health of the nation. Like a really early example, we can talk really about, we're talking about a lot of things. Um, we're going to talk about how, how Britain was actually quite late to the war on drugs, you know, to, to its initial credit. <laughs> um, uh, but during the First World War, the Defense of the Realm Act mm -hmm. um, did prohibit cocaine, which they said was deadlier than bullets. Mm. So a sense that this is going to be really damaging to, to the war effort. I don't know. I don't know how soldiers on coke operate. <laughs> Maybe more aggressive. <laughs> but but that, that was not the impression at the time. So Courtright in Forces of Habit, Drugs and the Modern World, writes from about the mid-17th century to the late 19th, the world's governing elites, with a few notable exceptions, were concerned with how best to tax the traffic, not how to suppress it. Prohibition would have struck them as futile and wasteful had they thought of it at all. Mm. Weirdly, up until about that point, you know, the last big wave of attempted prohibition was the early 1600s when various European states imposed tobacco bans, mm -hmm. which are unpopular, expensive, and uh, impossible to enforce. <laughs> now, the 19th century is like, it's not how we think about it, but it's, it's the century of drugs, mm -hmm. or a century of drugs. Cannabis, opium, morphine, and cocaine all really take off in Europe in that century. Famous morphine users included Jules Verne and Bismarck. Mm. 
And Sigmund Freud was a great fan of cocaine. You could buy both of those drugs in American pharmacies. You could actually order cocaine with a syringe uh, for, you know, liquid. Liquid cocaine was the thing from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Victorians were far more worried about alcohol than drugs because drunks caused more trouble. Mm -hmm. It was that was what the, the, the drug that they associated with with public disorder. This all changed in the 20th century. The country to blame for drug prohibition <laughs> is America. And the man to blame for drug prohibition in America is a research physician named Hamilton Wright. Mm. In 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt's State Department aimed to snatch some Chinese trade from Britain by offering to help China with its opium problem, for which Britain was largely responsible. So it was quite a, initially this sort of rather canny trade war issue. Well, don't you know, it's funny, there's, there's, there's an element to which the, the Chinese habit for smoking opium was a knock-on effect of their attempt to get rid of tobacco before that. So the Ming dynasty tried right. to get rid of tobacco and the Manchu dynasty tried to get rid of it. And what that meant was people go, like, well, I can't smoke cigarettes, so I guess I'll smoke opium. <laughs> and then you start, I mean, a lot of that was obviously encouraged by Britain because it was trying to yeah, yeah. sell essentially opium to China to make up for the fact that it was buying its own drug from China tea and, and ultimately you know it's paying China more money than it was getting so it was encouraged but partly that opium usage was a result of China's initial policy against tobacco. So America lobbies for an international conference on opium in Shanghai sends a three-man opium commission one of the delegates is Hamilton Wright another one is Bishop Charles Brent uh, who led an anti-opium crusade in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. While preparing for the conference, Wright does a lot of research, convinces himself that the US has a dope fiend problem. <laughs> that phrase originates in this period. Should be used more, I think. <laughs> Even though drug use was, was sort of actually in decline. So this conference goes quite well. He becomes a fanatical agitator for a national narcotics law, deliberately using racism to build support. So he tells horror stories about Chinese opium addicts, black cocaine addicts who turned into these sort of rapacious, unstoppable zombies while under the, the mm. influence. In fact, uh, you'd be surprised to know, white drug users outnumbered black ones two to one and 80% of all drug users led respectable, productive lives. Mm -hmm. The rates from repeated research are 10 to 30% problem addiction mm. on that drug. And this is on the really quite pernicious drugs, let alone things like cannabis, where it's obviously much lower. Generally speaking, throughout history, you see that same kind of rate, 10 to 30% become problem. It's very hard to believe because the only time that we come in contact with drugs, whether it's in movies right. or news stories, is always when there's a problem. But for the majority of people, the majority of the time, that there isn't a problem. This was also the period of the temperance movement in America, leading to the federal prohibition of alcohol uh, in the 18th Amendment and the, and the Volstead Act in 1919, where they worked in conjunction. Hilariously, for us, not for him, uh, Wright was himself addicted to alcohol <laughs> and was eventually fired for drinking on the job. But... He succeeded in drafting the Harrison Narcotics Act passed by Congress in 1914, which compelled anybody selling drugs to buy a license and keep records. It's a bit complicated legally because it was a prohibition disguised as a tax law. And yes, exactly. Certain key things unclear. But it did make two fundamental errors, at least two. One was that addiction was easy to remedy. At that time, an insurance salesman named Charles B. Towns. Do you, no, you no, have him right? come across him. He called himself Dr. Towns, despite not being a doctor, <laughs> claimed that he could cure addiction in just five days. And it took a decade for a scientist to reveal that this was, of course, nonsense. But during that crucial decade, it fed the myth that addiction was a moral failing rather than a medical problem. Mm. And because most doctors found 
addiction rather grubby, they hadn't studied it. Mm -hmm. So they weren't pushing back. They were just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't want to think about this. <laughs> the second mistake was not to anticipate that addicts would turn to the black market. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Charles E. Terry, a health officer for Florida and author of The Opium Problem, wrote in 1920, we had counted without the peddler. We had not realized that the moment restrictive legislation made these drugs difficult to secure legitimately, the drugs would also be made profitable to illicit traffickers. Mm. The word junkie first appears in the early 1920s as people start using it illicitly. Amazingly, the people who banned alcohol also did not realize this. <laughs> <laughs> and what I found was that if you want a kind of early example of why the war on drugs would not go well, America had given you like, like a 14-year <laughs> test case, which was then completely ignored. Mm-hmm. And they're also, they're coming from the same emotional space, right? You look at sort of, you know, when, once you get into 1990, they've got the red scare. You've got this yep. fear of like, you know, this is a theme that you and I have come to over and over again, whether it's, you know, with McCarthy or, or, or fascism of just like the country is in decline. You know, this is a this is a substance, whichever one it is that you're looking at, that corrodes the mind, corrodes the soul, corrodes the body. It's therefore weakening us. It's essentially a sort of national security issue. Those who supply it are sort of enemies of the state, you know, come from elsewhere. Yeah. There's, there's this mix up of the health of the individual body with the health of the nation, which for yeah. Hitler would be the Volk or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that Hitler was using amphetamines as well. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely mixed up with that sense of sort of national and societal decline. Along with Hamilton Wright, one of the great prohibition campaigners, and, and I mean prohibition of alcohol and drugs, mm -hmm. was um, Richmond Pearson Hobson, a hero of the Spanish-American War. And he declared, the whole human race, though largely ignorant on this subject, is now in the midst of a life and death struggle with the deadliest foe that has ever menaced its future. <laughs> He claimed that the U.S. had over 4 million drug addicts when health authorities uh, estimated it as more like uh, somewhere between a quarter and, and half a million. <laughs> so the key elements of the war on drugs are already in place here in, you know, just after the First World War. Cruelty, inefficiency, dishonesty, racism. Yes. What's interesting that's happening here is drugs function almost the way that pornography functions for technology or that military um, operations function for technology, mm. just they drive forward seemingly unrelated changes. I think that's because you can produce them in very specific places, but they're desired almost anywhere. So they are, from the very beginning, a globalization issue. Like you look at the way that the Americans respond to this, right? They want access to the Chinese market. They don't really, I mean, Wright cares about drugs, but the Americans don't really care about mm -hmm. the opium. They just want access to the Chinese market and it's a useful bit of international leverage. So when they set up these meetings in sort of 1909, going into 1914, these are the first international summits. This is the first time that world uh, delegates are meeting for any matter that is not signing a treaty to end the war. So wow. that, now that we look at the era of international summits yeah, yeah. in the 20s and blah, 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 this is where it begins with, with these moments. Addressing stuff that's kind of unrelated to, to the substance itself. I mean, Britain's position is more liberal than the American one. It's constantly trying to smudge and smear. It's like, oh, okay, you can talk about opium if it's a problem, but you can't talk about opium just between sort of Indochina. It has to be the world's issues, which, which accidentally ends up creating the domestic legislation by saying, oh, fine, so the world's got to deal with it now. So now every signatory to these conventions has to pass its own domestic legislation. And that's where the Americans end up banning the smoking of opium. And that's where the Brits end up banning the smoking of opium. Now, that's a really fucking interesting choice that they make. 
they don't pick the opium, which, by the way, at this point is being put in children's medicine. <laughs> you know, they don't pick the cocaine or anything that's in Coca-Cola. They pick smoking opium. Why? It's not remotely a problem. It's barely used. The reason is because smoking opium is associated with the Chinese. And here we see that second element of the globalization of drugs. It's not just that it requires international responses. It's that it triggers our view of the other within our society, the alien within our society. The first U.S. drug prohibition was the 1875 Opium Exclusion Act in San Francisco, which explicitly only criminalized the smoking of opium by Chinese people. <laughs> So later it became, this became less blatant, but that was very clearly like, as long as you're not Chinese, you can smoke opium. It's around this period right, that you get Arthur Ward's uh, Dr. Fu Manchu. He's like the archetypal evil Chinaman sort of seducing white women into these layers of opium. And that sort of racist archetype is present throughout the coverage and indeed the police reports of what follows right. in Britain and the US. Wright was very um, explicit about this. He said, one of the most unfortunate phases of the habit of opium smoking in this country was the large number of women who've become involved and were living as common law wives or cohabiting with Chinese in Chinatowns of our various cities. And that's the second element. It's never just the racism. It's always about our women are going to sleep with people from other races. What I didn't realize was the way that because it was quite a lonely crusade early on, that they would explicitly use racism to get racist politicians on side yeah. who hadn't previously worried about drugs. Well, especially with the South, right? Because the yeah. South were thinking like, why are you passing federal laws that contravene our state legislation? Yeah, yeah. It's like, if there's any way to convince the South about something that matters more than state independence, it's racism. <laughs> and so they will follow you on that basis. So you'll find that the police force, the Southern police forces in the US, literally changed their rifles to 38 caliber rather than 32 caliber because they believed that a black man that had taken cocaine, his skin was impenetrable to 32 caliber of bullets. It was literally creating changes in the armaments of US police forces. You see the same then in the 1920s with Mexicans, Mexicans strongly associated with cannabis. So the editor of the Daily Courier in Colorado said, I wish I could show you what a small marijuana cigarette can do to one of our degenerate Spanish-speaking residents. That is why our problem is so great. The greatest percentage of our population is composed of Spanish-speaking persons, most of whom are low mentally because of social and racial conditions. What's interesting about all this, right, is that these these sort of slicing legal attacks against types of drugs and types of mm. ways of taking drugs that are all very, very clearly racially signaled are taking place at the same time as the rest of the population is able to take often the exact same drugs without any damage whatsoever. And this trend continues throughout the period. Well, let's return briefly to prohibition of alcohol, just to see how what role that played. Alcohol flowed freely, especially hard liquor, because it was easier to transport and conceal than beer. Crime shot up by 24% in the first year alone. Pretty soon, courts and prisons were overwhelmed. Corruption thrived in law enforcement. And actually, by the end of the 20s, many of the people leading the campaign to repeal prohibition were former supporters of prohibition, <laughs> who had just seen how badly... It had gone. And the Wickersham Commission was set up to investigate prohibition. 
Bizarrely, for political reasons, it juxtaposed enormous evidence of policy failure with a conclusion that prohibition should stay anyway. And the New York World mocked the report with this satirical song, Prohibition is an awful flop. We like it. It can't stop what it's meant to stop. We like it. It's left a trail of graft and slime. It don't prohibit worth a dime. It's filled our land with vice and crime. Nevertheless, we're for it. Finally, 1933, prohibitions repealed under President Franklin D. Roosevelt. And you might think that the lessons were clear, but they were not clear to perhaps the biggest character in this story, Harry J. Anslinger, sort of bullish, bold, former railway cop who ran the narcotics division of the Prohibition Unit, which became the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1961. Huge kind of like overbearing, intimidating character. Basically the J. Edgar Hoover of the drug war, ruthless, puritanical, racist hardliner who insisted that drug users were criminals first and addicts afterwards. Mm. Initially didn't care that much about marijuana, but as soon as alcohol was legal, like it was almost like he needed something to do. Um, but it did tap into his Puritanism, which uh, there's a great H.L. Mencken quote about that. It goes, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> <laughs> which, which he really seemed to feel quite strongly. So in 1935, he declares that marijuana is as hellish as heroin. Soon he's claiming it's even worse than heroin. If the hideous monster Frankenstein, that's the doctor, not the monster, <laughs> came face to face with the monster marijuana, he would drop dead of fright because it would turn you into a murderous, sex-crazed, wild animal. Anslinger even went to the League of Nations to argue for an international ban on marijuana, but every single country turned him down. At home, though, had much more success, and William Hurst's newspapers got behind his crusade, as did other crusaders like Hobson I mentioned earlier, so, despite evidence that marijuana wasn't addictive, wasn't a gateway drug, wasn't rife among school children, and wasn't the cause of violence and juvenile delinquency, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. You know what just fucking blows my mind about this is that the evidence had been in for so long. Like, in 1894, the Indian Hemp Commission, which was established by Parliament, Runs, puts out a report, it runs to 3,000 pages based on 1,200 interviews. This is what it says. All of this is on cannabis, in case you, you know, haven't translated the phrase Indian hemp in your head. The moderate use of these drugs is the rule. Excessive use is comparatively exceptional. The moderate use practically produces no ill effects. In all but the most exceptional cases, the injury from habitual use is not appreciable. The injury done to the excessive use is confined almost exclusively to the consumer himself. The effect on society is rarely appreciable. Now, I think from a modern standpoint, you could add two things to that. You could add, if you've got mental health issues, you shouldn't go anywhere near that drug. And you can add, this drug is very, very helpful when it comes to epilepsy and multiple mm. sclerosis. Okay? Apart from that, that 1894 <laughs> report is just spot on. And yet for decades in the middle, people completely lose their mind over yeah. what this drug entails. In Britain in exactly the same way as you have just described, on exactly the same basis, with precisely the same sort of media coverage coming from it. This is from the Sunday Graphic. The reefer craze is becoming the greatest social menace the country has known. Why? Because the country, quote, will be all mixtures. There will only be half-castes. Well, there's a broader lesson here about policy. 
about how you make good policy because groups of doctors and lawyers kept producing reports showing that anti-drug laws were unnecessary, ineffective, indeed unconstitutional. Mm. But Anslinger and his allies buried or discredited them and he was constantly inventing or manipulating statistics to push his case for harder policing. He then begins to succeed abroad. So after the Second World War, the US gets versions of the Harrison Act written into the laws of the occupied powers in Europe. Oh, wow. Fuck, I had no idea. Yeah. Made Anslinger the US rep to the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs. Then it subsides. Back in America, drug hysteria subsides. And then what comes along? Another red scare. So Anslinger (laughs) pounces on McCarthyism, links drugs with communism, Mm -hmm. specifically Chinese communism. The Bureau's budget doubles in five years. And then you get these opportunistic politicians like Hale Boggs in Louisiana, Price Daniel in Texas, boosting their careers by passing very punitive drug laws on the same basis, introducing things like mandatory minimum sentences for the first time. And it's worth mentioning, I mean, some of those mandatory minimum sentences are extraordinary. Mm. I mean, and indeed, at one point, if you're over 18, in 1956, I think it's passed in the US, if you're over 18, and selling drugs to someone, uh, heroin to someone who's under 18, it's the death sentence. Or the jury has the option of the mm. death sentence. I mean, this is the point in those early 50s where the rules on drugs become so, they become so severe that in fact it's never touched that sort of, that, that line no, ever again. No, that, that's what's weird is that actually, if you, if you look back, like the 50s was the worst because that was basically, you don't give addicts any help at all. And, yes. and, and, so, and so actually, you know, like Nixon was much kinder oh, yeah. than that. So what America manages to do is basically bully the world into drug prohibition. Uh, The single convention on narcotic drugs in 1961 is the only UN convention ever to use the word evil. (laughs) Not once on genocide. (laughs) Not not once on war crimes. Only on drugs. In 1957, a lawyer called Rufus King visited Europe to compare other countries' policies with America's. When I asked about the drug problem, they'd say, what problem? (laughs) I found out that this whole thing was made in America. Let me... Tell a little story of why Britain was doing really rather a lot better than America until this period hits and suddenly we just get sucked into their orbit. There was a committee, a departmental committee on morphine and heroin addiction chaired by a man called Sir Humphrey Rolleston Mm. in 1924. Exceptional committee. Six members, all medical men, various medical backgrounds, but they all had, they're all experts in addiction. Their inquiry lasted a year. It looks into it and says, look, making someone go cold turkey is, I mean, they call it barbaric and inhumane. You have to treat the people in an individual basis. And they come up with a conclusion that I think even today is just startlingly humane and radical. They say there's basically a couple of different groups of people that we're going to have to give prescriptions to for heroin, cocaine, things like that. This is maintenance prescription. This is exactly what maintenance prescription is. So a person for whom, after every effort has been made for the cure of the addiction, the drug cannot be completely withdrawn. Why? Either because they suffer serious symptoms which cannot be satisfactorily treated, or, and this is the fascinating part, where a patient who, while capable of leading a useful and fairly normal life, so long as he takes a certain non-progressive quantity, usually small, of the drug of addiction, ceases to be able to do so when the regular allowance is withdrawn. Now, that's some crazy shit right there. Because that is not about, we're going to start reducing the dose to get you off this thing, but it's better if it happens in a medical Mm -hmm. setting. This is saying, there's certain people who basically, they're not going to function well if we take it away. They function fine if we keep it. So we are now envisaging that GPs 
just keep on signing off heroin to someone like that. It's worth bearing in mind the context, right? Lots of the people who were doing this at the time were veterans. And so on that basis, there was a, they were considered in very high social esteem in a way that heroin addicts right now are not. Worth pointing out also, the, the number of registered heroin addicts in Britain never uh, exceeded 700. Yes, so we're not talking about a vast number here. No, that's right. That's right. However, it's, I mean, it's incredible stuff. What's crucial about it, I think, is twofold. Well, I mean, I say threefold. Firstly, the pragmatism. Secondly, it's treated as a health issue and not as a police enforcement issue. And thirdly, the moral objective behind what they were saying was harm reduction. Essentially, they'd say, yeah. look, there's drugs. Some of them, some people are going to have difficult relationships with them. Our job, our moral principles, we have to reduce the harm. So this is essentially the opposite of the war on trucks. This is the British, known as just known as the British system, right? It's called the British system. The Rolleston Report becomes the operating manual for how Britain behaved. I mean, I this blew my mind. Uh, quite a lot of the research blew my mind. In the 1950s, Billie Holiday, heroin addict herself, visited London and said, one day America is going to smarten up and do the same thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, at, the, at that point... The Times published an article criticizing the UN Opium Protocol and called it the case for heroin. And half the British heroin supply was controlled by the Piccadilly Circus branch of Boots. <laughs> What's incredible to me, I have walked by that Boots so many times. <laughs> it's in every bit of research here. I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, they're talking about that specific Boots again. And it, which, is, which is sort of still there. <laughs> and it's because there was no connection between drug use and crime and no black market, it just wasn't a priority for the police. And the Americans hated this. Mm. Like, they just could not. It was, this was an affront to them because it was like, well, how can this be working? You know, we, this, this can't possibly be working. We have to undermine this. And this happens during the 1960s. Arguably the person who was responsible for fucking up the British model. And her name is Lady Franco. She's originally Isabella Robertson. She was a psychiatrist at Maudsley Hospital and investigating psychosis. Now, after the death of her first husband, she marries the surgeon Claude Franco, and she's not, he's knighted, so she becomes Lady Franco. She's mixing at the absolute pinnacle of society. I mean, she's in attendance at Princess Margaret's wedding. Very stern woman, dresses only in black, wears a monocle. She starts seeing addicts in the 50s and the 60s. She never really does ever reduce the dosage. In fact, she starts giving out drugs pretty much to whoever wants them. Take this for a stat. In 1962, of the 1 million heroin tablets that were prescribed to users in the UK, 600,000 of them came from her. She was at this point basically mm. supplying the entirety of the heroin users in London. Now, she was not doing it for the money. She was not doing it because she was greedy. She genuinely believed that this was the thing you had to do to keep people off the streets. But it triggered the official response to, to what came next. Well, there were a few things going on. So there were these kind of rogue doctors prescribing it left, right and centre. Um, there was also a, a full on tabloid panic related to the mod panic that you would know mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. the movie Quadrophenia about these amphetamines called Purple Hearts mm -hmm. and the father of somebody who had sort of was having a pretty bad time taking too many Purple Hearts, uh, contacted his local MP who needed a pet cause, as is so often the case here. Um, <laughs> yes. And then yeah. um, the Home Affairs Committee almost immediately begins drafting a, an amphetamine control bill. Then you've got this obvious growth in the counterculture of cannabis and LSD and famous arrests like the raid on Keith Richards' home. And there's more and more restrictions 
And it's it's sort of a familiar story, right? See, there's a, another report, this time the Wooten Committee, finds that cannabis is less dangerous than alcohol and possession uh, should not be a serious crime. The tabloids and, a, and an attention-seeking politician, this time Labour Home Secretary James Callaghan, mm-hmm. future Prime Minister, mm-hmm. um, sort of blow their, their tops. <laughs> and it's Callaghan who drafts the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, even though he's out of office by the time it actually passes. Yes, Heath that passes it, right. It passes into law. In May 1971, just before Nixon's war on drug speech, and this is where we get Class A and Class be from. This is still the framework for our existing drug yeah. laws. It's exactly so. It's where the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs is. And, yeah. and you also get the concept of possession with intent to supply, mm-hmm. which, you know, a lot of experts here argue was disastrous because what it does is it encouraged aggressive, racialized stop and search policing causes massive tensions between the police and the black community. Incentives to arrest people for, for very small quantities, to have um, to raid people's houses. And of course, you know, as it's been said in report after report after report, what it does is it treats someone who buys five pills and gives one to a friend, mm, you know, mm. when they go to a club, the same as a dealer with the very, very, you know, high punishments that you get as a dealer, as opposed to someone who's just got personal possession. And I mean, one of the real tragedies of this is the breakdown. In in relations between the police, I mean, not, I mean, obviously the, there was racist policing anyway, but it intensifies that so much. And in the book Drug Wars, Woods and Raffaele argue the polite parliamentary discussions in the lead up to the Misuse of Drugs Act of 1971 led directly to smashed windows in Brixton in mm-hmm. 1981. And they say because Scarman's report into those riots was not interested in the drugs policing aspect that this is a really important part of the story that that's overlooked like how much damage that did to communities Mm -hmm. and to their 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 relationships with the police then at the same time as this is happening that system of doctors being able to prescribe maintenance you know drugs starts getting wrapped up so it's a series of reports by the wonderfully named sir russell brain and unfortunately these reports are called brain one and brain two brain one is not much cop brain two computer like exactly like (laughs) Brain 2 basically shuts down the system. It, he doesn't really mean to, to be honest. Right. Like, I mean, his intention is to, to keep up with maintenance uh, prescription, but he wants it taken out of the hands of doctors and put it into the hands of only specialist licensed psychiatrists working in special drug clinics. The thing is that these drug clinics are just not very good. They're badly funded. There's about 39 of them in 1968. They're considered very embarrassing. Again, like you were saying earlier about the doctors, but the people that work there, they don't want to be working there. They think it's shameful. They're Mm. tucked out of sight. There's a couple of good ones. There's a good one run by Dr. John Owens at All Saints Hospital, but most of them are really very bad. And then something happens that isn't legal and is cultural. It is predominantly that the balance of power between liberal and, let's say, authoritarian doctors when, or psychiatrists when it comes to treating it, shifts towards the authoritarians. So very particularly, you get Philip Connell. Right. becomes hugely influential. But these guys go into senior positions in the Royal College of Psychiatry, in the General Medical Council, in the Advisory Council of the Misuse of so Drugs. the politics of medicine changes. Exactly. The culture, really. Yeah, mm. it, and they're very socially influential. None of this is by statute. It's really just by the the consensus that grows within psychiatric circles and the liberals are sort of frozen out. And you can see their effect. I mean, they put a real social taboo against prescribing heroin. They constantly want it to move off. So in 1968, 60 to 80 percent of the patients going to those clinics were prescribed heroin. By 1969, the following year, it was just 34 percent. 
1978, it was less than 10%. Right. Now, today, the same laws apply, by the way. You can go to one of those clinics and technically you could be prescribed heroin, but you never, ever are. This social taboo grow up. Right. And that was just the end of the British model. And it came in this sort of inadvertent, non-systematized, accidental kind of way. Well, I mean, we, we, now the, the actual phrase war on drugs enters the conversation, even though like Anslinger uh, was forced out by uh, John F. Kennedy. So he's, he's out of the picture now. Got marks for Kennedy on that one. Richard Nixon's war on drugs was largely driven by his antipathy, I think, towards the hippie counterculture, the anti-war movement. It was sort of a culture war. And, and there's race in it as well, don't get me wrong. But I think that this was like a, a, a new dimension. He was just like, these are basically the people standing outside the White House shouting at me. <laughs> uh, and there's a quote that you may have read because it's just so extraordinary. Yes, um, I know exactly which one you're Former Nixon aide John Ehrlichman, uh, one of the Watergate conspirators, admitting in 1994, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. I can't believe that he literally said this. said this. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, we do. <laughs> we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black people, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Now, this does seem like the bit in a movie where suddenly someone realizes that they're on tape <laughs> and and the villain has been caught because it's 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 an absolutely extraordinary confession. I also think it's slightly bullshit. Because it's in a legitimate source. It's a hundred percent legitimate source. I mean, speaking in 1994, as you said, so so yeah, way yeah. afterwards, and also had lots of problems with Nixon, personal hmm. problems. And it's not to say that he didn't hate hippies and hate black people because yeah, yeah. he definitely did. I also think Nixon genuinely hated drugs. I think that there's a difference right, yeah. of Nixon's early behavior to the way he behaves in 1972 for his re-election bid when it's a Southern strategy and it's much more law and order with racial overtones. If you look at the stuff that he puts forward when he first talks about the, law, uh, the war on drugs, he puts quite a lot of money into methadone clinics, education campaigns, yes. research. Yeah. It is... It's the worst part comes later with Reagan. When it comes to Nixon, it's quite a nuanced picture, I think. And and oddly, I suspect that the moral message of, of that quote is correct. But that kind of conspiratorial, you know, the idea that Nixon yeah. sat down one day and went, how do we get the blacks and the hippies? Let's do a sure. war on yeah, drugs. Yeah, yeah. I think it's too simplistic. Yes, it is extraordinary that Nixon is associated with the phrase war on drugs. And yet compared to Reagan or even what was going on under Eisenhower, not saying it was driven by Eisenhower, mm -hmm. but really during the, mm -hmm. the Anslinger years, you know, quite kind of re reasonable on the methadone front. But the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 classifies marijuana as a drug of maximum danger and no medical benefit. So illegal that even medical researchers weren't allowed to work with it. So it was harder to study. He sets up the Schaefer Commission, which you can probably guess what happens now, shocks Nixon by recommending decriminalization of marijuana. So what does Nixon do with the report? He buries it. In 1973, he creates the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, as you will know from their jackets in movies. 
but but again, it's sort of it's not unstoppable momentum. After Nixon, there is a brief opportunity to cool things down. Eleven states decriminalized marijuana in the seventies. Uh, which mm -hmm. I, I had no idea. But the case of Jimmy Carter's drug czar, Peter Bourne, epitomizes like how vulnerable reformers are to attacks from the press. And this it's is an, really important. It's an incredible story. So he's a psychiatrist who ran the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in San Francisco. And he recommended, and this is a great way to put it, the penalties for possession should not be more ruinous than the drugs themselves. <laughs> like what a great rule of thumb. Yeah. But this minor scandal breaks out involving like a quaaludes prescription it, it's sort of inoffensive but it puts him in the spotlight then it turns out that he attended a christmas party where drugs were taken not by him but in the vicinity and again the press like the the real sort of secondary villain mm. of this story 100 yeah. sinks his career with that goes carter's plans to liberalize drug policy which was part of his campaign mm -hmm. in 76 was to liberalize drugs policy that opportunity goes and then you get reagan now some of our gen x listeners uh <laughs> they might, come into the story now <laughs> yeah might remember what i'm about to talk about so in june 1982 ronald reagan relaunches the war on drugs with a speech from the white house rose garden where taking down the surrender flag that has flown over so many drug efforts we're running up the battle flag it's just amazing <laughs> bullshit <laughs> First Lady Nancy Reagan makes drugs her pet project, launches her Just Say No campaign to promote it. She does things like making an appearance on Different Strokes, the sitcom, and an anti-drug music video called Stop the Madness, featuring Whitney Houston, David Hasselhoff, oh Arnold Schwarzenegger, Latoya Jackson, and Stacey Keach, who was jailed for cocaine possession. How have I never seen this? It's... <laughs> It's it's quite stop the madness is certainly what one thinks while while watching it. So this because it's it's sort of a personal campaign for for both the Reagans. And this leads to the omnibus crime bill in 1994, absolute nightmare bill, empowers law enforcement to seize any assets that they suspect are related to the drug trade, mm. which is sort of a green light for like shakedowns and injustices. And it was mm -hmm. just like astonishing how much can be taken away from innocent people because just suspicion mm -hmm. that has something to do with drugs. Then you get the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which toughens up mandatory minimum sentencing, changes the focus from rehabilitation to punishment. Reagan said that his new national crusade would be Pearl Harbor for the drug traffickers. I mean, the language of this yeah. is consistently depressing. Well, and it's so telling, isn't it? Because at each point, if, you're, if war is your metaphor, right. you're in a million miles away from care, you know, which is the only right. rational response to what you're seeing. And, and of course, how did the war with the drug traffickers go? We don't have time to, to, to go into the absolute hell of Latin America, but I would suggest that just reading, people read a little bit about Colombia during the reign of Pablo Escobar. The fact that he's sort of valorized as a little bit of a yeah, cool know, gangster man yeah. is, is so horrifying. It's basically the sort of lawless war zone. Reagan and Bush amazingly promised to eliminate drug production in Latin America by 1995. We could do it. Literally a eliminate it. Doesn't, like, just <laughs> the folly of it. And at the same time, they are kind of helping out certain governments who are complicit in the drugs trade because they're their allies against communism. Mm -hmm. So even what America is doing 
is in conflict with itself, let alone failing to get to grips with kind of the reasons why farmers in Peru and Bolivia were growing coca rather than other crops, like the, the economics, the politics, the, the, the law and order situation. Why do they keep doing this? Why do they keep pretending <laughs> that this is a war that can be won? And it's because, partly because there's hysteria. And in the 80s, you get this absolute hysteria about the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. Now, in the same way that, say, during Prohibition, people that normally drank beer stopped drinking beer, drank hard liquor. Yes, exactly. Smaller exactly. amounts. So this is where you get, oh, cocaine, harder to get, price has been raised. So it creates a market for a cheaper, more potent, smokable alternative, which is crack cocaine. And like you say, you will say, see this on any drug when it faces prohibition. At what point, you know, as, as the Daily Mail loves telling us, did harmless weed turn into high strength skunk? Because any time you yeah. impose prohibition, you're looking for ways of maximizing the strength and, and making it a smaller object that can be more easily transported uh, and you can pay, you know, you end up paying more for. And, and, the, and the sort of, I mean, the moral and policy disaster of the, of the crack panic, of course, is that the rich continue to snort cocaine. Mm -hmm. So crack becomes a street drug. And that makes it more visible and easier for the police to target. You know, they're not raiding, you know, club bathrooms, sort of bright lights, bright city cocaine use. They're looking for, for people on the streets. But creates this unbelievable disparity where you could get the mandatory minimum of five years in jail. This is until Obama passed a, a law repealing this. For 500 grams of powder cocaine or just 28 grams of crack cocaine, by the end of the 80s, there's a higher percentage of black men in prison in America than in South Africa. <laughs> and as Mike Gray writes in Drug Crazy, whether by accident or design, the drug war had evolved into a race war. Absolutely. And I mean, this is recognized in, in government. I mean, the U.S. Sentencing Commission in 1997, disgracefully, years before anything's done about it by Obama, says nearly 90 percent of the offenders convicted in the federal court for crack cocaine distribution are African-American, which the majority of crack cocaine users are white. Yeah. I mean, it's completely recognized that you have a racial attack. Now, to give you an impression of that double standard, in the Oscars ceremony in 1981, Johnny Carson is the host and he makes a gag. The gag is, biggest moneymaker in Hollywood last year was Columbia, not the studio, the country. Mm. Ha ha ha. Everyone fucking laughs. Because for white, rich people, you just get to do the cocaine. You can make gags about it on TV shows that are shown around the fucking world. But if you're black and you're poor... They'll send you to jail for 40 years for having a tenth as much. Now, Britain, similar, I mean, not so, not so, not so intense. And actually, we didn't, we never really had like a major crack problem here. But I mean, you might remember when Manchester was nicknamed Gunchester mm -hmm. in the 90s and you had you know, the media panic over ecstasy and the rave scene also made drug policing a higher priority. Gangs, I mean, what happened to gangs is just astonishing because armed robbery gives way to drugs as basically the cornerstone mm -hmm. of, of, um, of gangs. And the use of informants <laughs> becomes so absurd that you've got, you know, outright bribery, but also the need for, for sort of rival police officers to protect their informants' as assets. Mm -hmm. So gangsters are continuing to function because they're informing on other gangsters. One source says in Drug War, 
you had informants informing on other informants to help police investigating other police. <laughs> and there was another way, the story of John Marks. Do you know this in, in Merseyside, right? And, you know, he pioneered a strategy called harm reduction in the late 80s where you provide addicts with safe heroin and clean needles. I mean, it was, you know, this is obviously the maintenance model, but he was doing it in a, in a different way. This was, surprisingly, supported by Margaret Thatcher's government. Arguably, I think you could say that this was the most impressive thing that Thatcher's government did the whole time it was in power because it was world-leading and you would not expect those guys to do it. But when it came to it, when it was a crisis, they actually did think with commendable rationality, which you would not expect from because, her. Because it was because of, because of AIDS. Yes, exactly. And because of the fear of, of that being spread through dirty needles. But it was opposed by the far left count, Labour Council in Liverpool because they thought the drugs inhibited class consciousness. Yeah. So well, I, I think this is a running theme on the left in Britain, by the way. It's a trade union left and it's aversion to drug policy. It's part of the reason that we struggle for reform. But... So in Marx's area of Liverpool, and if we're, again, we're talking about, OK, what works? Leave aside the morality. What works? There was a 94% drop in property crimes, no needle-related AIDS cases, no drug-related deaths. I mean, this isn't the entirety of Liverpool. This is mm -hmm. an area of Merseyside. Um, also took away the need for users to start dealing themselves to fund their habits, which is the sort of pyramid scheme yes. of, of heroin use. But in 1992, Marx made the mistake of speaking to an American, specifically someone from uh, 60 Minutes. And that report caused uproar in America. American authorities, who were still pushing just say no, the abstinence model, pressured the UK to follow their lead and basically shut down the clinic. Funding was cut off. The clinic closed in 1995. Uh, within two years, one in 10 of its former patients was dead. Crime had shot up, etc. It's actually quite hard to control your temper when you go through this story. Because you, yes. you just you yes. get to the point where just like, you, you, you're not far removed from just being murderous. You know, it's not like you can't understand the stuff that's been put. Yeah. You are putting dogma above human lives. Okay, and that takes us to sort of, I mean, we're skipping quite a bit, um, including <laughs> <Yeah>. our childhood. <laughs> like, nevertheless, that takes us to where we are now. Now, because you felt bad about the fact that I had to read a book by Piers Morgan in the last season, you have read a book by Peter Hitchens, who I think is one of the very few people left standing still making the case yeah. for the war on drugs in sort of intellectual circles or among columnists or, or, or writers. How How is the book? Well, there's a line from the preface that I'm thinking of using in all my future books. I can only hope that this book manages to open a few generous minds to the truth while preparing myself for the usual abuse. <laughs> I did want to find a good defense of the war on drugs, but this is this is not it. He is a very puritanical moral man. Mm -hmm. The spirit of, you know, Harry Anslinger and Hamilton Wright is, is strong in him. Uh, he believes that drug use is a moral weakness rather than an addiction. He also just says in passing that he doesn't believe in ADHD or dyslexia. <laughs> As an aside. <laughs> just an aside. Believes cannabis is more dangerous than heroin, cocaine or LSD. Defends alcohol prohibition is not wholly bad. Oh, wow. And, oh, my God. And compares British society to Brave New World. <laughs> so once you get through this, his key argument <laughs> is that the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act was too soft on marijuana by classifying it as Class B. He blames liberals in the cabinet for twisting the arm of Jim Callaghan, who didn't want to separate them out like that. 
Um, so he says there is no war on drugs in this country and there has not been such a war for many decades. It's like communism and neoliberalism, basically. Real prohibition has never been tried. Yes, yes, um, exactly right. So he, he then also blames the police for not arresting enough people and the entire establishment for promoting drug use. And he invents something called jaggerism. Are you aware of jaggerism? No. After uh, Sir Mick. Mm. He describes it as John Stuart Mill with electric guitar accompaniment. Sounds pretty fucking Sounds good pretty to good. me. Uh, with his insistence on complete bodily autonomy. Uh-huh. He describes the BBC's late night lineup, a highbrow show hosted by Joan Bakewell, uh, a regular opportunity for revolutionary cultural propaganda. <laughs> and he even thinks that Sir Simon Jenkins has way out 1960s ideas. Oh. So he's coming from a very particular place, right? But what really I think kills the argument is it rests on marijuana alone. He, he does not really wow. talk about class A drugs like heroin and cocaine, which, which were prohibited, not widely tolerated. So therefore, he doesn't get into the effects of prohibition on crime and health. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is, that, again, it's not a policy book. What it is, is an attack on 1960s culture, the permissive society. Right. And so it's extremely telling as a book, because rather than really get into the nuts and bolts of like different methods, the effects that they have on people's health, on law and order, economy, so on and so forth. It's a simple moral condemnation. Mm. And maybe that is the heart of of the war on drugs. Maybe that sums it up. Mm -hmm. God, it's incredible to me that he's just progressed nowhere at all. And he seems incredibly lonely right now. So, I mean, let's take a look at what's going on in the world to try and give this some sort of happy ending. <laughs> because actually, it isn't all doom and gloom. The story of the war on drugs at the moment yeah. is that the war is seen as lost, mm. almost to a scale of, of a global consensus, uh, at least in, in democracies. So, I mean, the Netherlands, as everyone knows, were the first people to break ranks in the early 1990s. Switzerland followed suit with, I didn't know about this, but they had heroin prescriptions, needle exchanges, medical sort of supervised facilities for um, for injection. In 1995, the Uruguayan delegate was at the UN Drug Council meeting and asked, he raised these concerns about liberalizing drug consumption all over the world. In 2013, Uruguay became the first country in the world to legalize cannabis. And has now been followed. Justin Trudeau made the same commitments. You've got talk right now, right now, and this is an extraordinary thing to say, about regulation of cocaine in Colombia. And Colombian president mm. recently retweeted an Economist article talking about this and has shown his commitment to, to, towards pursuing this. Same thing for MDMA in the Netherlands. In the US, again, funnily enough, it's quite, cir- it's quite a circular story because in the same way that they had sort of troubles with the initial legislation on the basis of state rights, it's now state rights that mean that they're able to start legalizing it, liberalizing it. Well, I had to look at this because it's moved so fast and even quite a recent book I was using was way out of date. 37 states have legalized medical use of marijuana, 21 have legalized recreational use, and another 10 have decriminalized it. And yeah, so what's happened, it's an amazing sort of bottom-up process. We're talking about basically the way for sort of decades, America bullied the world mm-hmm. into following it yeah. on prohibition. In 2014, the chief drug control official at the State Department, William Brownfield, admitted that they couldn't do that anymore because of what the states were doing. 
the individual states. How could I, a representative of the government of the United mm -hmm. States of America, be intolerant yeah. of a government that permits any experimentation with legalization of marijuana if two of the 50 states of the United States of America, which shows how quickly it's changed, <laughs> just two of them, have chosen to walk down that road? And just as that's had this domino effect, the legalization of marijuana has a huge effect on the general war on drugs, so Ira Glasser, who ran the American Civil Liberties Union for a very long time, he argues without marijuana prohibition, the government can't sustain the drug war. Without marijuana, the use of drugs is negligible and you can't justify the law enforcement and prison spending on the other drugs because their use is vanishingly small. Mm. I, I mean, I wouldn't say vanishingly, but it's obviously much smaller. <laughs> I'm more mean that he's, he's assuming that they're rational people. Oh, right. Everything in this story. Okay. Sort of he says, I always thought that if you could cut the marijuana head off the beast, the drug war couldn't be sustained. Huh. Now, obviously, Peter Hitchens would, would not approve of, of this. Mm. But actually, if you do take marijuana out of it, you're dealing with much smaller groups of people. The country that I... This is not the best example. It's not gold standard because there's still plenty of enforcement mechanisms. But the country that is really worth paying attention to, I think, is Portugal. Portugal is decriminalized. Yeah. All drugs. But the thing that gets me about it is that the responsibility for drug policy is not with the police. It's in the Ministry of Health. And the Ministry of Health strategy, two of their values, reads as follows. Uh, this is them establishing their principles. Humanism. For example, a recognition of the inalienable human dignity of all citizens, including drug users. The second value is pragmatism, calling for solutions and interventions that are based on scientific knowledge. Now, just reading that feels like it's from another world, almost. You right. know, just to talk about the inalienable right of drug users, who are talked about, you know, even if you think about words like junkie, smackhead, it's always, you know, you, there's almost no group in society that newspapers would feel the way, the right to speak about them that way. They do here. Something interesting happens in the background of British policy. So we feel terribly behind in terms of this. Right. Program. And I was going to ask you why you thought that was. If we're behind America now, which historically is is bizarre. Yes. Well, I, OK, so I think the answer to that is essentially constitutional, that America has a division of power from the centre to the local areas. The local areas can experiment, be dynamic. In Europe, you have division of power by virtue of having proportional representation rather than first past the post. We are first past the post. So the only two options are Tories and Labour. So you sit there with them. The Lib Dems, who have very good drug policies, barely get a look in. The Greens, who have very good drug policies, 800,000 people voting for them, one MP. You know, SNP, not as good as them, but a little bit better. And because of that first past the post system, I think it silences out those voices that you would hear in Europe or that you can hear at a local level in the US. Then there's the... The fact that we just have to say it, it's like the fucking cowardice of politicians. Mm. You know, David Cameron, before he became prime minister, when he was an MP, sat on the Home Affairs Committee, signed up to a report pointing on evidence-based, you know, harm reduction strategies for drugs. Didn't hear a fucking word out of him when he was prime minister. Boris Johnson, we know, would instinctively have a sort of liberal position. This talks about stripping drug users of their passports when he's there. I mean, people I like. Wes Streeting on the Labour front bench. This is Wes Streeting just the other day. People say the war on drugs has failed. When it comes to county lines drug dealers, I don't think the war on drugs has even begun. I want to crush every drug dealer in the country. Oh, and these are people that I like. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like impressive politicians. There has to be at some point the bravery to say this stuff, even if you are in the Conservative or the Labour Party. But historically, you know, if, if, if a Wes Streeting were listening to this podcast... You know, I mean, have we not seen that the reason why you have county lines 
drug wars. And exactly. why, the same reason why you had kind of like, you know, gun warfare in, in Manchester in the 90s is because of the war on drugs. The, this fantasy, it's as likely to happen as it was for, for, for Reagan and Bush to wipe out all Latin American drug trade <laughs> by 1995. Like you said, though, the good news, maybe less so here, is that, is that, is that because of this experimentation in America, people are like less fussed. They're more relaxed. It's, as, as often what happens, isn't it, when they can see with their own eyes the evidence so last year, a poll by the ACLU showed that 65% of American voters supported ending the war on drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not just Democrats. Like, 65% is a lot. 66% supported eliminating all criminal penalties for possession and investing that money in treatment services. Now, I do think that it is extremely complicated exactly how you would work this. The best article I came across was Legalize It All by Dan Baum in Harper's Magazine from a few years ago. And what was his proposal? <laughs> well, legalize it all, but it won't be easy. Okay. You know, he, and he argues that actually a state monopoly on the drug trade would be the safest and the most lucrative way forward. But of course, politically, like, extremely difficult. And he does say, look, hard drugs are going to have to be licensed rather than sold, yeah, like fine. marijuana. And he, and he does look at the lessons from re-legalizing alcohol. So he says, we'll have to do a better job at legalizing drugs than we did at re-legalizing alcohol. If we want to hold addiction to a minimum, keep drugs away from children, assure drug purity and consistency of dosage, and limit drugged driving. But also the thing is, the world is our laboratory right now. Like one of the advantages of being so far back in progress on this issue <laughs> is that you can look at, you know, in the US, they have this very sort of commercial approach to it. In Europe, most of the countries are experimenting in a more formal sort of state-run regulatory capacity. You have all these different models that are being pursued. And, you know, we're going to be able to watch them and see what works for which drugs in which places. And that will be the kind of evidence-based model that we would, you know, use. And we start to move on. But it is you know, about time we wake up to the absolute poison and the racial havoc and oppression that's frankly followed. Just the sheer extent of the injustice that has been done over over a hundred of years of pursuing this absolutely batshit policy. Start thinking to ourselves, look, this, if there's ever anything has been proved not to work, it is this thing and it's time to move on from it. Well, let's end there. If you would like to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us at originstory at podmasters.co.uk. And you can find all of the resources that we used here, which are just full of fascinating statistics and anecdotes on the show notes. Next week, we finish the series with something very dear to our hearts, free speech. The first time we've ever discussed something that we actually believe in. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're very pro. Or are we? Uh, You can find out right now if you back us on Patreon, get that episode a week early. Cheers, guys. Season two of Origin Story was written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.